There were simply too many companies chasing too little revenue. The iron laws of markets have now reasserted themselves. The ratcheting up of interest rates by the Federal Reserve has not helped, leading to weaker demand and higher business costs. If the price-earnings ratio is much higher than normal for a company, one of two things can happen. Either the company will eventually justify its share price by making higher profits, or its share price will come down to earth with a bump. That is an excerpt from an article titled, The Year Dot Com Turned Into Dot Bomb, and it appeared in The Guardian 21 years ago. I am Thomas Law, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association, and welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. In this episode, I will be joined by Dean Robeson, SVP of Global Technical Support at ServiceNow, and we will be discussing what lessons we learned during the infamous dot-com bust and how those lessons can help us in today's economic environment. And for those listeners not familiar with TSIA, we are a for-profit research institute, and we are on a mission to help our member companies run profitable technology business models that unlock real business value for customers. So here we go. And, and Dean, welcome. You know, I was looking at your LinkedIn profile, and you describe yourself as this grizzled SaaS veteran. And as I went through your career history, um, I don't think you realized that our careers actually sort of have intertwined for almost 20 years. And I'll give you examples here. You were at Aspect Telecommunications in the late 1990s. I worked for SGI, and we were one of your earliest customers. In fact, I almost took a job at Aspect then, uh, working with Gary Barnett. I don't know if you remember Gary. And then, yeah, you know Gary. And then then you were in PS at Salesforce in the early 2000s. And I remember doing some advisory work with uh, Susan St. Ledger at that time. So I think we overlapped there. Then you were Chief Customer Officer at InsideSales.com. I have to admit, I don't think we have any connection there. But now you're at ServiceNow, uh, which is a great active TSI member. And so we intertwine again. And so what I want to do is bring in here, and if you can introduce yourself and your role at ServiceNow before we get going, that would be fantastic. No, happy to do it. And thanks for having me. And uh, gosh, hopefully I have a little bit of wisdom to pass along because you're right. It's been a long time that we've kind of gone in and out of these market conditions, been a part of the SaaS industry uh, for all this time. And yes, um, I'll, I'll start with, I'm a Marine. And so getting into high tech was not something I was expecting coming out of the Naval Academy uh, way back yeah. when. Um, I thought I was going to be a general. I thought I was going to be a warfighter. I was in the Marine Corps artillery, went all around the world and back again and blowing things up and uh, loved it. For right or wrong, good or bad, my wife is an attorney and going state to state, bar exam to bar exam just wasn't in the cards for her. Yeah. So she gave me an ultimatum and said, hey, it's either me or the Marine Corps. I chose her. And here we are, what, <laughs> 28 years later now? Um, sounds like that and was so a good so good. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it certainly was. And so in getting out of the Marine Corps, you know, I had a pick of kind of opportunities from Procter & Gamble to Lockheed Martin and Nortel Networks was the the company I chose in Northern California. Oh, yeah. We were a Nortel, Nortel yeah. shop back at SGI. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, great opportunity. And I was, you know, a, kind of a, a team leader, a, a manager of a, of a small IT team and learned a lot and started, you know, getting my business chops I or my, my sea legs under, underneath me. And then, you know, in that frothy time of all sorts of innovation and growth of all these high-tech companies, a lot of my colleagues at Nortel who were prior military, they went off to Cisco and other organizations. And I ended up going to Aspect 
um, loved it. And my, uh, my claim to fame there, what started that journey for me was a transformation, not unlike the digital transformations that we're seeing today across the, you know, across all sectors and all industries. But that one was a transition from a platform company being the Cadillac of the ACD industry mm -hmm. and, you know, shipping iron, yep. these big ACD units to uh, these call centers to a yeah. software company where all of a sudden you can have a soft phone and CTI integration in, into oh, your yeah. uh, service center. And they looked around the company and they said, we need a project leader to lead this transformation. And um, <laughs> it seems like everybody took a step back and I didn't know enough of the time to, to step backward. So I was out in front and uh, they asked me to lead it. it about a year and it was fine. It, you know, everything turned out well. Boy, what a great learning opportunity to go from like revenue recognition rules yep. around hardware and depreciation, things like that, to now all of a sudden you're a software vendor. What does that look like? And as a result of that change, um, I had the ability from the co-CEOs at the time to effectively write my own ticket. What do you want to go do? What, what part of this new company do you want to be a part of? And I chose sales operations, had a great leader uh, in there at the time. I thought I could learn a ton from them. But also what really piqued my interest was Salesforce automation because we needed to grow and scale and use automation uh, to meet our needs and meet our promise or to fulfill that promise. And so at the time it was Siebel. And so I was one of the fastest, largest Siebel deployments of its era and kind of became known in that universe. And as a result, Salesforce at the time that was really trying to go after Siebel at the time, caught wind and we had a, a senior executive, uh, Phil Barker, kind of the father of customer success, leave Aspect, go to Salesforce. And when he went there, he whispered in some people's ears and said, hey, be on the lookout for this guy. I, I think we could use him. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened, that as that dot-com implosion happened and Aspect was on some pretty rough yeah. waters and you know, really just trying to keep things together, on that downward slide of how the company was doing, um, I popped my Periscope up and Salesforce was all over me. And they're like, gosh, what you did there and how you unlocked the potential of Salesforce automation, you could do that with our customers. And sure enough, I went from a practitioner in sales operations and leading a team and driving tool requirements and what, what that application needed to do to now a professional services person who is now doing this on behalf of many, many customers in the Salesforce universe. And I absolutely loved it. So that was, the, those are the early days, you know, seven years doing that in the services organization um, in various different leadership roles. Maria Martinez, um, who we both know yeah. and love, uh, who's now currently at Cisco. She enters the picture at, um, at Salesforce, looks at my resume and says, geez, Dean, you're not from Accenture. You're not from Deloitte. What are you doing in services? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I've been pretty successful here over these last seven years um, uh, and having a blast. He goes, yeah, but you're a Marine. You, you should be running support. I'm like, oh, okay. Interesting, you know, fit for a profile there. Um, ha happy, you know, you're gonna have to teach me some things, but happy to take on the responsibility. Probably one of my favorite jobs ever was yeah. kind of learning and being part of that growth at Salesforce at the time and leading the support organization. Um, all sorts of things that we did there to help and build and, you know, build a foundation for the future. Then another thing happened, you know, four years in, things are going well, love and life. Mark 
Benioff had a, kind of a bee in his bonnet around growth, mm -hmm. and that was acquisitions. And we had not built out a very strong acquisition integration muscle yet at Salesforce. And uh, they looked far and wide. They looked at some McKinsey consultants. They looked at all these luminaries that were really, really good in M&A. But no one was quite right the cultural mm -hmm. fit. So sure enough, I got another knock on the door one day when they said, hey, Dean, we got, got an interesting opportunity for you. Would you like to lead integrations uh, for our acquisitions here? Like, same thing again. I don't know what that is. I've been the recipient of it, but I haven't, like, lived in that. Happy to give it a shot if you think I'm the right person to do it. And sure enough, two weeks later, you were doing it. I'm on a due diligence trip, <laughs> and uh, exact target, the $2.5 billion acquisition way back when, was my very wow. first one. Yeah. Um, so that was a heck of a learning opportunity. 13 years was a great run at Salesforce, you know, built a good team around acquisitions, integration, and just kind of, what's next? What do I do? Where do I go? And, you know, cultures change and growth and things, you know, that happen in these big companies. And I, I learned a lot and I was ready to kind of take that into other places. So went into the Salesforce ecosystem with InsideSales.com. Great role leading everything post-sales as a chief customer officer there. Um, things didn't necessarily work out so well with that, um, that early phase startup. And sure enough, I popped my Periscope out again and ServiceNow was all over me like, we want you running support in a similar phase of growth that you did at Salesforce. And here I am, and I've been here for the last five years and just absolutely love the rocket ship that we're on here. And, and, you're, and you're back focused on support right there, right? I wish I could say that, Thomas. I wish I only was focused on uh, oh. technical support at ServiceNow. No, I had, um, I've had two very interesting moves already inside of ServiceNow. So when I started, absolutely, I was singularly focused on support and did that for about a year and everything was going, mm -hmm. going fine. New CEO on board in the name of John Donahue, who's now leading Nike. Um, he comes in, does a listening tour, talks to a number of customers, comes back one day, calls me into his office and says, uh, Hey, then listen to the customers. And they're saying at ServiceNow, we don't do this thing called customer success really well. You came from Salesforce. You've been part of that growth. You've been part of the development of that. Can you help us here? Can you help us kind of create a strategy that's unique to ServiceNow that would meet the needs of our customers? So now all of a sudden I had a night job and I'm running around talking to customers and building an internal team to kind of investigate what we do. I make a presentation to the board and the executive team. And the next thing you know, I'm being asked is, hey, can you get this thing off the ground? Ah, okay. So I paused my support responsibilities, gave it to another person for about a year help get this thing unlocked and get it rocking and rolling. We hired about 67 people in one year to, to get this thing started. And then we decided to tr kind of transition it into a combined services and success organization that inside we call customer outcomes. Okay. And that has that synergy of the success equation and the professional services implementation side all under one roof. And then I was then able to go back into technical support. So had an interesting pause, kind of a tour of duty to get customer success yeah. launched here appropriately, loved it. And then just recently, the turn of this fiscal year, the turn of the calendar year for us, got asked again, we had a very unique set of capabilities inside of ServiceNow that we call product success. 
they were individual. These teams were individually embedded in each of the business units. We run a, a business unit model here for product management. And each business unit kind of did this product success thing their own little way. Um, nothing was standardized. Every time our chief product officer asked for an answer or response, he got it a different way depending on the BU that he was talking about. And then one day he just comes, knocks on my door again and says, uh, hey, uh, you're kind of Switzerland. You, you know, everything kind of comes through you in support. Could you consolidate product success under you and put it on rails? Make it yeah, support obviously was across yep. all the business units, one function supporting all the business units. This product success exactly. within each, and and just help you know me understand what was in that product. You know, when a business unit said, "Yeah, we have this thing called product success," and I know it was different in each business unit, but what were they what were they chipping at there? What what did that mean? Yeah, we anchored on three fundamental responsibilities that we didn't see anybody else yet quite doing in ServiceNow. One of the elements we call product vanguard, which is being so expert on this new product that is about to come out, about to be released, that we are probably the only ones in product success that have the skills or the wherewithal to maybe do those initial implementations, yep. get those lessons learned. What is the deployment playbook? What are the gotchas? Yep. What are things that our internal services team would need to know for implementations? And most importantly, our partner mm -hmm. ecosystem. What do we need to teach them so those SIs can go out and be successful with their projects? So product vanguard was one of those responsibilities uh, that we wanted to standardize. The other one we, we call you know, protect the base, protect the house. And that's your, your classic product adoption responsibility. But what product success brought was a depth of expertise. So ServiceNow is a vast platform. There's all sorts of capabilities. And what our customer success organization was, was good is the generalist, like general adoption, not a ton of depth in any given product area. So we could augment them with deep expertise, not unlike a um, solution sales selling model, right? You've got your generalist account executive, and then you might have a solution seller that knows the vertical or knows the product really well, similar on the customer success side. Yeah. And then the last one we call success at scale. So we're learning all these things. We know this product really well. It doesn't help us if we're keeping it in between our ears. Mm -hmm. We have to share that information. So building the white papers, building the reference architectures, building those elements that we can then share with the partner ecosystem, our customers, and the practitioners in the, that customer outcomes organization, that is one of our responsibilities as well. So standardizing that and then putting some targets and deliverables around that. Yeah, you know, as I listen to you there, I mean, that, because this handshake between customer success, right, which all it typically has the charter of, you know, adoption and making sure the customer renew, renews and the product team is so critical. And a lot of companies struggle with that handshake. And what you just described is a capability called product success to really close that gap down. So that's fantastic. Absolutely. So, Dean, I appreciate that, over, you know, the introduction and the overview and as I was listening to you, I was thinking your friends who went to Cisco now are dealing with what you had to deal with at Aspect 20 years ago, which is software eating through hardware, you know, becoming a more of a recurring subscription model, all that stuff. That train is coming to, you know, every hardware station for sure. So let's get into the topic at hand here, which is helping people navigate the current environment based on lessons from sort of previous downturns. And we you know, I have to be intellectually honest. I mean, I think the current environment 
is a little scary because uncertainty, right? Visibility is very low. Valuations for a, a lot of tech companies way down. All kind of articles about how VC funding is shriveling up. But, you know, you have seen this before, right? As you had mentioned, in 2001, um, at Aspect, it was a high flyer. All of a sudden, the business model has to change. All of a sudden, the dot-com bust occurs. When that happened, you know, as you were assessing what to do and opportunities, I mean, what, what was your personal game plan? What went through your mind as you were watching sort of things unravel back then? Wow. With the wisdom I have now versus what I applied back yeah. then, I don't know if I necessarily would have changed anything, but I probably would have been looking for maybe different fundamentals or different things to explore. Mm -hmm. I think what allowed me to get through it all is, is a significant amount of trust and is in some really good relationships. And what I mean by trust is like, I was being told like the company was going to be able to survive. The company was going to be able to turn around, which kept me at aspect probably you know, maybe longer than I yeah. should have stayed, but it definitely kept me grounded in, we've got an important mission. We're doing well with the mission that we've been handed. So stick it out and kind of, kind of work on it. And, and they were a great company. A lot of people yeah. on, uh, you know, listening probably don't know aspect, right. But I mean, they were a darling of the Valley and they had a great culture. And um, I mean, they, they were just a wonderful company. So I can understand being anchored saying, Hey, why do I want to go anywhere else? This has been a great run for me. And, and it is a really good company. A absolutely. And for all those reasons you just said, probably culture and the relationships kind of being the number one of, I like who I'm working with and we're doing good, good work. Yeah. I couldn't ignore the fact that at one point we were probably 3,000, 3,200 employees. And next thing you know, the employee count of the company was 925. Wow. And I'm like, uh oh, yeah. do I want to be doing such a good job and being part of this? But I'm one of the last people here turning off the water, shutting off the lights, closing the windows. Maybe I should take some matters in my own hand and see if there's something else out there that would be okay and might have a little bit longer runway than objectively what I'm seeing in this company right now. And that's what caused me to go look elsewhere. And I think, I mean, if we just kind of click into this juncture that people may face, and, we, and again, uncertainty is high. We don't know what this downturn is going to be. We do know that layoffs within startups have definitely started to tick up. And, you know, I was at Silicon Graphics, I think we were 10,000 employees, and we started to go through the same journey that Aspect did at the same time, right? Yep. And I made a decision, it was the second, you know, with the first round of layoffs, first time the company had ever laid off, and they said, oh, this is just going to be a one-time thing, you know, we just kind of got to just trim a little bit here. And I I had to help execute that, right, as a, as a manager, it's no fun, oh, yeah. uh, as you know. Um, but then the second round came. And I said, you know, th this is a trend. And, 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 and I thought, do I really want to be here for the third round, the fourth round? And I said to myself, no, because, you know, just like you're saying, I mean, I've been here to build things. And I think that is tough because at SGI, like you had asked, I liked the culture. I liked the people I was working with. And so I'd say for anybody listening, you know, sometimes you just you have to look at the numbers. <laughs> you have to look at, you said, fundamentals. You got to look at the financial fundamentals and just have those hard thoughts around, look, realistically, where is this going? Right. Because if it's really going to continue to trend down, it is better to leave earlier, not later. That's the other coaching I would give. Don't wait until yep. it's the fourth or fifth or sixth round, because then, excuse my French, it's a shit show at that point. I mean, it's just culturally it's a mess and, right. and opportunities are, are, are going to be less for you at that point. So I think that's a first lesson from the, you know, the dot com is, you know, just be intellectually honest about the financial 
direction of your company and don't wait too long to make a move. 100%. Yeah. But one of the moves you made, and you already mentioned this, is you went into sales ops, you went into PS, and talk a little bit more about your thought process as these very different opportunities present themselves. And previously in this podcast, you know, we've talked about these spiral career paths where you make these leaps from your comfort zone, right? And so why were you comfortable leaving the comfort zone, right? Why? I mean, like, what was your thought process there to say, hey, I've never done sales ops before, but what the heck, you know, let's, let's go give it a try. What, what, what was your thinking? Yeah, you know, I, I blame the Naval Academy. I blame the Marine Corps. <laughs> um, my wife, I think, you know, she calls me like, no matter what my business card might say, or, you know, the latest title I would have posted on LinkedIn, she always calls me the Maytag repairman. Mm-hmm. Like that's yeah, my yeah. job. Like whatever I'm being asked to do, it's to come in and help shore something up, make it more industrialized, scale it, whatever it may be. So she likes to call me like yep. no matter what, I'm I'm the Maytag repairman showing yep. up with my tools. And I and I think just wanting to, you know, believing in a mission, believing in the team that you're with, and then taking a flyer and believing in yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and if I think if you, if you believe in the organization, you believe in the mission that they're on, and it goes back to that trust thing, like whatever they're asking me to do, I'm, I'm going to believe in them. And I believe in myself that I can work this out. I can figure it out. Sometimes that is, you know, bitten me in the butt. Um, like, well, I stuck my neck out maybe a little too far on that one. But most times that earned trust paid off. And that's exactly what I would say in a, you know, in a situation that somebody might find themselves. They're asking you to do something maybe a little bit harder, maybe a little bit more difficult than what you're used to. There, there could be goodness there. There's a quote your question reminds me of, and I think it was Thomas Edison way back when. Opportunity is missed by most people because it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. <laughs> and that one's like always yeah. stuck with me. Like if you want to create opportunities, if you want something good to happen to you, you got to roll up your sleeves. You got to get in there and get dirty and, and make things happen. No one's going to hand it to you. And I think that's kind of served me well across, you know, all careers, Marine Corps or, you know, business. Yeah. I mean, to your point of hard work here, I mean, a, a downturn is going to create some challenges for companies. But within those challenges is real opportunity, career opportunity, right? There's going to be hard problems and say, hey, you know, so let's say the problem is, hey, you know, we, we, you know, we've got this customer success thing and man, you know, we don't have all, you know, this free flowing cash here to just throw headcount and we've got to figure out how to, you know, to digitize and, and maybe optimize this thing and take out 20% of the cost. That's an opportunity, to lean into that and figure out, okay, how are we going to go do this? We've never done it before. And so I think that's the other point I'd make to folks is there are going to be a lot of real management opportunities are, that are going to be created here in challenging times. And and I think leaning into those, and, and like you said, trust is important. I think if you're looking at your boss or your boss's boss and you're saying, look, they, I trust them. They trust me. They're, they're asking me to do this hard thing. I'm going to learn a lot. I would lean into that type of, if that's, you know, if that's the environment that exactly. you feel you're in and, and go for it. So, um, so I want to, you know, because of your, your, you know, your tenure, I want to ask a question about um, customer success and, and, and the fact that you've had customer mm-hmm. success and technical support. So I, I, I'm very curious, what is the biggest difference in your mind between 
those two functions because most companies do have both, right? I mean, they, they'll have both in play. Sometimes I've seen this, people will take a technical support organization and simply rebrand it and they'll say, oh yeah, it's now our customer success organization. I, you know, I don't think that's the winning play because I think there are differences. But what's your perspective on the difference since you, since you had run both? Yeah, clear division of labor is so important. And, and you know, there are some companies that, you know, very early stage, you probably get away yeah. with kind of a singular organization and a bunch of super Doing soldiers that can cook, dance, bake bread. They can do it all, right? But then eventually as you get bigger and you got to scale and you've got to, you know, especially living in a regulated market type of world, how you operate in some of these markets, you better tease out who's doing yeah. what and where. And I think the primary distinction for me is proactive work on like the adoption and the value side. That for me, that is the cornerstone of customer success, that you're not waiting for somebody to tickle you or to trigger you. Like you are leaning in with that customer and saying, you got to get more value out of this. You're not using all your licenses. What, what's going on here? And really working with them and trying to unlock that value. On the tech support side, it's a much more reactive uh, type of, of notion. And boy, you better get it right and you better get it right quick because all the customer really wants is to get back in the fight. So if you're flapping around going, geez, whose responsibility is this? And do I have the right resources to actually get this issue resolved? Well, you better look harder at how you're delivering yeah. tech support because you want to be able to address that issue as fast as humanly possible because the customer is depending on you. And then, yeah, somewhere in the middle, those two organizations kind of start ebbing and flowing back and forth where customer success could find a support issue that is bubbling up that hasn't gone critical yet. And same, same tech support could be whispering in customer successes here on, hey, this, this customer's falling behind and they're creating their own weather. You might want to get in there and help them and guide them so they don't keep falling in the ditch. So those organizations can should be talking aggressively with one another. And here at ServiceNow, I actually sit on both mm -hmm. staffs. I'm part of the engineering organization. I love it. Like my peers are the person that runs our cloud service and the people that develop the product. Three in the morning, a customer has an issue and I'm getting woken up. I'm waking up those peers and say, hey, I need your best and brightest to get this customer back in the fight. But I also sit on that chief customer officer side that's got education, customer success, services, partner enablement, all of those elements, providing that voice of the customer and the things that we're hearing from our customers back to them so they can be that much more proactive. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. Sometimes, you know, I, I know that the, the technical support organizations take umbrage with this concept of, well, you're reactive, right? You're reacting to a problem. But, I mean, I, I don't think it's anything, be, you know, because there are there are proactive support, you know, motions, as you know. There's doing all kind of things support organizations are doing to make sure that the customer doesn't go into the ditch. But when they do, to your point, you got to be optimized to get them right back out and back on the road as quickly as possible. You know, that's a that's a very focused set of skills and processes. And there's there's nothing to be, um, you know, uh, you know, embarrassed about in terms of well, you're not the customer success organization. It's like two very distinct objectives, and they're both mission critical for the customer to ultimately be successful. Yeah. 100%. So 
Well, that was helpful. That's helpful in terms of that perspective. So I'm I'm going to go back to our current environment here around labor markets. And right now, the labor markets. Everyone I talk to, they're still pretty tight. You know, getting get the right uh, talent, and even in these economic headwinds. But we've seen this before, right? And and and, and I remember hiring in the late you know, 90s, and it was just crazy what we were doing. I mean, you know, to get people and retain people, and and how you know brutal it was. And so, the first question I want to ask you is: in a tight labor market, now that you've been through this before, what advice would you give your 1999 self, right? When things right before the 2001, <laughs> things were really tight. How do you think people should think about navigating a tight labor market? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question. And so there's those that are in a job and really happy with it. And then those are looking like, oh, I'm not in the right spot and I want to go somewhere else. So let me address the, if, if you're there and you love what you're doing, just keep being relevant, have that growth mindset. You know, if somebody gives you a task and asks you like, hey, we want you to do X, Y, and Z. They're like, okay, that's great. X, Y, and Z is, is awesome. But I'm also thinking about how can I add additional value A, B, and C? They didn't ask for this, but am I helping something scale? Am I preventing a reoccurrence of this issue? So yes, address the issue or the task at hand, but are you adding a little bit more? Then all of a sudden you're separating yourself kind of the wheat from the chaff and you're making yourself even more valuable. So that would have been advice I would have given myself is like, always go that extra mile when given the opportunity. And then everybody's like, that that person's worth two. That person's worth three. I, I'm not just looking at a single individual at that point. For those that are looking and they're like, ooh, I'm not in a good yep. situation. Um, do your homework, right? You don't want to go out of the frying pan into the fire. The grass is greener on the other side of the septic tank because there's probably some good <laughs> fertilizer over there. Um, yes. You know what I mean? So you, you got to do your homework and then go to a place that because it is a hot market, you kind of have your choice. Go to a place that you see yourself learning and growing and you're setting yourself up for the future. Don't just settle for the first available thing or just the money because it oftentimes isn't just about the money. And that would have been the advice I would have given myself a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, you know, and, and we're going to sound like two old farts telling people not to, to worry about the money. <laughs> but um, but I agree with you. The one thing that always just kind of kills me, I, or, or I have, I feel bad in my heart for these folks, is they're in that, actually that first scenario where they're, they're at a place, you can tell they like it, they like what they're doing, they're challenged, they've got really good opportunities in front of them, but they have this anxiety or this angst of like, you know, FOMO, right? Like somehow they're missing out because they've heard it's such a great market and, oh, my my buddy just made a move and maybe I should really be making a move. And, and I, you know, my coaching would be, look, if you really are engaged in what you're doing, um, and, and again, you're like you said, you've got good challenges, you're building trust with, you know, the, the, the people around you, the people above you, et cetera. That's the wrong kind of angst. The, the angst is when you start saying, Hey, I'm not growing, you know, I don't like the environment. I mean, I, these aren't good challenges. Then, then I think, you know, it makes sense to start, start looking. And, and again, don't wait too long. And I think your coaching is spot on is don't jump at the first thing and definitely don't jump just because of the money. I mean, you really want to find, you know, exactly. a, a good fit. So, but let's flip this around because you know, this labor market could go soft. It absolutely could go soft. And and as you and I saw with the dot-com bust, man, it doesn't, it could happen in a heartbeat. You never, you just never know, right? What advice do you give folks 
and, and again, you've had to navigate soft labor markets, right? You know, <laughs> how, what should they be thinking if that does occur? Yeah, I, I would have like two pieces of advice. Number one, what is your area of expertise? Own it. Like be expert in something and make sure everybody knows what you are an expert in. If you're just this kind of generalist and, hey, I'm a good guy, I'm a good executive, you know what? You're not going to stick out from the crowd. Know what you can go deep in and tout that. Um, and that's just something, in, you know, whether it was my artillery days way back when, I, you know, I want to be the best artilleryman in the Marine Corps. Or, you know, in the Siebel day, I want to be the best Siebel SFA deployment, you know, that's in the world. Go deep and, and own whatever that is that sparks your passion. The second thing is the power of networking, the power of relationships. Thomas, you and I come from a world pre-LinkedIn, yep. right? Yep. And knowing people and picking up the phone and having those breakfasts or lunchtime conversations when it wasn't so easy just to message somebody on this platform that's ubiquitous you know, around the world, it's a little bit harder. So I really appreciate when people get to know you and they understand your brand and they understand who you are, don't let them go. Like you want to nurture those relationships because you never know when it's going to become beneficial to get that recommendation, to get a door open for you. And so the power of relationships in this type of market or a market to come uh, that might grow a little soft becomes critical. Yeah. And, and, and to build on your two points and, and back to the first one, I mean, I think that, you know, companies hire to solve problems. They don't hire a generic, like, uh, you know, they might say, yeah, I need a, a head of customer success, but they, they want a higher head of customer success because they have specific problems. Hey, I'm not uh, scaling or, you know, my adoption is not getting here. And you're right. I mean, you want to have calling cards and say, look, I've scaled customer success before, or I totally get the best practices in adoption or, you know, dot, dot, dot. So I think that's great coaching is, is everybody should understand some of their core capabilities are, their core skills that they can point to examples to that they can tell that story, like you said, have references, et cetera. And it's not just, oh, you know, I've, I've managed stuff. I've done stuff. So I think that that's key. And this thing about building relationships, I think that fortunately, I, th I think people in, in general aren't good at that. Um, and I'm actually a little ner more nervous even about this younger generation understanding that, you know, building mm -hmm. these relationships, especially with, with managers and mentors is so critical because you're right those relationships if you build them early and young in your career they are gonna just pay off massive dividends down the road in ways you don't even understand i still think about a guy named ken coleman who hired me at silicon graphics he was an osu alum i was coming out of osu i mean that guy opened more doors for me for a decade i mean not just at sgi right i mean and always kept that you know that relationship warm and and everybody has opportunities like that. I mean, right now, I guarantee there's somebody in your in your you know at your company, right in your career, in your in your life. It's like, gosh, if I would really just nurture this relationship a little bit more, and they really do understand who I am. Again, they understand what I care about, what I'm good at, etc. That's going to pay off five years down the road, ten years down the road. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, the days of cold calling or accepting that that random email from somebody and actually yeah. doing something with it. That's, yeah. that's long gone. But if I get a warm introduction from a colleague that I trust totally and know, and they're yeah. vouching for, of course, I'm going to yeah, take absolutely. a look at that. Candidate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's great. That, that's great coaching. Um, so I'm curious, you know, when you look at the current in, in environment, um, what do you think is different about this compared to the dot-com crash? Wow. 
it's a deep question. I could, you and I could have probably a couple of beers at a bar and talk about this one for a long time. I, you know, I'm no economist, so, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not Jamie Dimon. I'm not out there, you know, leading JP Morgan or anything, but I, I think if I were to distill it down, today's environment, I think everybody is getting impacted. Every, it isn't just tech. Every industry is kind of going through the same set of challenges because of some of the monetary policy, like really where the interest rates were, a lot of the speculation that was happening in Wall Street, like everybody got it caught up in it. And now all of a sudden everybody's kind of coming down. So it wasn't specific to tech, like the dot-com, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, situation yeah. was. So that's an interesting one. Like we're all getting swept up in this one. And if you have those good business fundamentals, you know, if you've got that good long-term plan and you're providing value, especially in the era of digital transformation for some of these tech companies, I think we're going to weather the storm. We're going to get through this fine. Um, it isn't a sector. This one isn't a sector specific yeah. issue. Yeah. So that's the big one. The one that is eerily really, really sim similar is crypto. Yeah. You know, you look at what the, you know, the cryptocurrencies are going through. That smells like the dot com yeah, sure situation. And so I'm not in there. I don't dabble in that. Um, I haven't had to dabble in that yet. But boy, I'm I'm staying away until something stabilizes there. That's the one that would spook me the most. Um, otherwise, I think we're all on in this ride and let's hope we stabilize some monetary policy. The Fed does whatever it needs to do with interest rates to kind of get us back in the game. And the good companies, the one with good fundamentals, good sound business models, you know what? They're going to be yeah, okay. Yeah, and I think, you know, I'll put two things on the table in terms of what I think is, is different. And the first one is aligned with what you just said. I mean, you know, there was, in the dot-com bust, there was a lot of vaporware out there of companies that had ridiculous valuations. Yes. They really, they had no monetization strategies. They, their business fundamentals were just not there at all. This time... You know, there are a lot of, you know, younger companies out there, mid-sized companies, their their fundamentals may not be perfect, but they're they're solid. And and to your point, they're they're gonna they're gonna make it, right? They're gonna maybe have to do some trimming, batten down. So I think that that is different and that, that bodes well, I think, for our industry. But I'll tell you the second thing though that is gonna be really interesting to watch is if you remember it with the dot com, you know, run up, these valuations kind of went crazy like really quick and they got really high and then all of a sudden the bubble burst. And and it didn't you know, it wasn't going on forever. We have companies that have these crazy valuations now for a long time, right? This has been going on for over a decade. And that bubble has burst and I think that a lot of people are saying, Well this is totally temporary, you know, our valuation's off thirty percent, forty percent, whatever. You know, just give it a quarter or two and we're gonna be right back in the saddle. I don't think so. I don't think so. I agree. and that is going to that is going to be hard for people because on paper you you were worth a lot now you're worth a lot less right on paper you've got people who said well yep. I was just working here just because of the options those options are all under, underwater you've got executive teams who are like oh my you know our valuation is definitely going to come back next year we're not going to take anything less for this company and I think that the whole psyche of the industry is going to have to adjust to a new reality. Because it's not like this inflation is going away tomorrow. It's not like money's going to get cheap tomorrow. This is going to be with us for a while. And it, it may take years for that the, sort of, again, the psyche, the mentality of, hey, you know, everybody should have these ridiculous valuations to actually work itself out of how we manage and think. Completely agree. It's like, you know, gird your loins. Like if you're with a good company and it's got good fundamental, you like who you're working with, you like what you're doing, 
yeah, guess what? You, as long as you can pay your bills with what they're paying you, stick it out. You know, just grind through it. You will get to the other side. But if it causes you to pop, like, wait a second, I looked at the fundamentals. Things aren't looking so good. Then, yeah, you, you might want to be thinking about something else or, hey, what they're doing and how they're cutting around here. I can't pay my bills. Well, you got to put food on the table for the family. But yeah, otherwise, grind it out, and and I think everybody will be better off for it. Yeah, because I think that quick hit, you know, hey, we're gonna, we're going to flip this thing in three years, and we're I, I just <laughs> I just do not see that in the horizon here. So, no. yeah, it's going to be interesting. So, so we covered a lot of really good ground. I want to give you a, a last chance here because you you do use this term grizzled. So I, I'm curious, is there anything else <laughs> that that you have learned as a grizzled veteran of the industry that we haven't we haven't touched on here yet? Any advice you give to folks right now, again, in the current environment? Yeah, well, Tom, I'm, I'm thankful this is a podcast, not a video cast, because you would really see the grizzling <laughs> on me if, uh, if this a, a video involved. This goes back to, I think, what you said about like kind of that younger generation and what they can learn. And I put that out there and I, I get asked all the time, like, what did you learn from 20 years ago? What did you learn in this phase and in this era? I have a lot to share and I want to let people know I'm open, like I can share my horror stories. I can share the good, I can share the bad. Bottom line is learn from my mistakes and don't repeat them. And I think by putting that out there and just saying, you know, I've, I've been around the block, I've seen a number of things, I'm, I'm happy to share that with others so they don't have to go through the same pain we might have. Yeah, and, and I'll flip that around a little bit. And again, for the audience, I think, again, in building these relationships, asking somebody in your workplace, right, who has been around for a while, Hey, did you live through the dot-com bust? What was that like? What did you learn, right? How did you navigate? I think having those conversations is a great way to learn so that, again, as you're, if you're younger in your career, you don't have to make the same mistakes that we made <laughs> you know, 20 years ago. You can take advantage of that. And those are great conversations. Those are great relationship-building conversations and I think huge value-add. So I, I appreciate you putting that, putting that out there, and I encourage people to, to run that play with whoever you know who's been around for a while. So we can still be valuable, yeah. Dean. We can still help out a little. <laughs> well, so I, I look at it this way. The mo my, one of my hobbies, I'm a goat farmer, yeah. right? Got a whole bunch of goats and we're learning, you know, with every breeding season, every drought, whatever. It's like, how do you handle them? How do you yeah. deal with the disease? How do you deal with this? And the best, like it isn't a book. I don't go on the internet and kind of look up kind of tips and yeah. tricks for the goats. It's this crusty old veterinarian that lives around the corner, right? And whenever he comes in and kind of looks at the goat, I'm asking him, what about this? What about that? How yeah. would you handle this? And just learning that wisdom from somebody that's been through that before, that is the best, fastest learning you can ever get. And there's some of us kicking around still in SAS that I think we could do that with the next generation. So, so I think I just heard that you and I are like two old goat veterinarians is what I heard. <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly right. All right. Yeah, I was gonna say I'll onboard that. I'm totally, I'm totally okay with that. Well, hey, thank you so much for for sharing your your insights here uh, today. And as always, I, I like to end with the big question of the day. But today, I'm gonna end with a humble piece of advice. If you think you are completely immune from the impacts of an economic downturn in tech, I would suggest you reconsider. Take it from two grizzled veterans of the industry. Thanks for listening. Cheers.